Everybody, you know, hates it when Christians are standing up condemning abortion today because they're like, you know, oh, let let them do whatever they want. Did, guess what? Christians in the 19th century who condemned slavery were treated much the same way. It's pretty much the exact same, right? Mind your own business, right? But we look at that and we're like, well, thank God those Christians spoke up and ended slavery, right? Because that's how this works, okay? That's what the church has done throughout history, that we've pointed to things that other people weren't concerned with, and we've said, this is wrong. This is morally wrong, and we have an obligation to stop this thing. If Christians in the West had not spoken up on slavery, we would still have slavery, okay? There's this weird belief today, you know, that slavery would have eventually passed away. That's not how things work, okay? That's not how things work. Slavery was a worldwide, timeless institution when it was abolished. It was all over the world. It was in every major empire, okay? It was everywhere. The idea that slavery was morally wrong and should be abolished by force, that was the thing that was new. All right, welcome to our very first Righteous Remnant podcast episode. Um, I'm Dennis Cole, and I'm here with um, our co-host, Paul Albar. And um, our vision is to train and mobilize Christians to pray, to vote, and to defend. You know, Paul and I and many others, I've been talking with pastors and leaders all over the region, um, we are just concerned. We feel like there is a new need in the body of Christ um, to understand the times that we're living in and to be prepared for them. I personally have been feeling this burden for many years. And just to give you a little bit of understanding about me, um, I've been a pastor since, wow, 2006. So about 14 years I've been in pastoral ministry, and um, mostly here in California, in Northern California for about six, seven years, and then for the past, you know, six, seven years, I've been down here in Southern California. Um, Paul, why don't you introduce yourself a little bit, man? Yeah, yeah. So my name is Paul. Um, uh, you know, I've known Dennis for, gosh, how long have we known each other, Dennis? Like three years now? Yeah, about. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I, I've actually only been in ministry for about a year and a half, but um, after being in ministry for that time, I've realized that there's really a need for Christians to, to mobilize and to start, you know, engaging in politics and um, start influencing society to have godly values. Um, I've been a Christian since I was, gosh, since I was eight years old. And I grew up in the Philippines and I came here and I uh, kind of walked away from my faith for a little bit. And then um, when I was 18, that's when I kind of had this uh, conversion experience again. And um, yeah, and uh, I just want people to know that it's our job as Christians, as Christ followers, to um, um, to contend, to pray, to vote, and to defend an apologia for our faith and, um, and and for our liberties here in America. So I'm excited to have this conversation, Dee. Very cool. All right, well, by the time we release this podcast episode, it's going to be the beginning of November um, and people are, the voting is happening on November 3rd. So we are jumping right in. We're in the middle of probably the most contentious election for sure of my lifetime. Um, I, it's got to be the most contentious election in many years, many decades at this point. And, you know, there's concern that, you know, no matter who wins, we could see 
you know, an outbreak, a fresh outbreak of violence. Um, many people are fearing, feeling the increased tension, the rioting of, you know, the past couple months. We're in the middle of the biggest lockdown ever, you know, as far as I know, in the history of the world. There's never been a global lockdown like this in every country, pretty much. So these are some really incredible times that we're living in. So how... You know, why do you think this season is important for the church to be prepared in some of the ways that you already mentioned about praying and voting and defending? What's the big deal now, given everything that's happening, Paul? Wow, that's a great question. Well, I personally believe we're in the last days. I, I believe that Christ is coming soon. And, um, you know, you read Matthew 24, and it talks about, the civil unrest that's going to happen, um, uh, uh, the many falling away. Um, but I also believe that there's going to be uh, a remnant who are going to rise. There's going to be a revival in the last days before Christ returns. And so I think the polarization of just morality is at an all-time high. And there's a lot of Christians who are not seeing this. And they're kind of asleep. So I, I think it's important for us to... Um, number one, uh, wake up the church. Yeah, we need to start praying and encouraging the church to wake up. I mean, I'm just reminded of Peter and Garden Gethsemane, and uh, uh, you know, Jesus is about to die, and um, Peter and and, and the other disciple were they were just sleeping and they're not realizing the hour that they're in. So it's my heart um, um, to to partner along with others and encourage the body first of all to to contend for uh, our liberty here. And not, not, not just to do it because of political ideology, but really we need America is that kind of gatekeeper of liberty in the world right now. And we need to go ahead and, um, um, and, and fight and, um, and, and go out there and influence people to understand what's happening in the country. Yeah, absolutely, man. Absolutely. Yeah, I you know I've been I've been saying I think we are in the middle of the the largest global brainwashing probably in the history of the world right now, and I understand that's a that's a pretty grandiose statement, and a lot of people would assume I'm exaggerating. I really don't think I'm exaggerating. We're seeing we're right in the middle of a resurgence of socialism, um, you know, which is amazing. Um, here in the 21st century, it's not just happening in America; it's happening in almost every developed nation of the world. Right, it's happening in Korea. It's happening in Europe, in Canada, all over the place. You see um, socialism resurging. I I've heard that in Korea, Black Lives Matter is popular. <laughs> I'm like, is there are there, are there are there like ten black people in Korea? You know, <laughs> like I mean, how 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 are these messages? You know, they hate Trump in Korea. You know. How do they know anything about Trump? Well, they're it, you know they're hearing about it through kind of legacy, legacy mainstream media here in America, right? That that's all getting pumped out to all of these nations all over the world. You know, if you ever go on Reddit, you can just see it's a kind of a global community. It's very American dominated, but it's a global community. And they, man, those guys hate Trump, right? They hate him, and that's because we there's this incredible. Um, information disinformation that's going out right now and the issue is that it's affecting christians okay that's the issue right and i think that's where you know our heart really lies me and you you know we understand that um 
you know, the world is going to do what it's going to do, but I get really concerned when I see the influence of the world affecting the church in mass. And, you know, I've been working with young adults, with college students a lot over the past, these past 14 years, and I can tell you, I have seen a clear, you know, there, there's a clear correlation between what is happening in the world and what's happening in the church, right? I feel like it's the church is splitting right now. I just read, um, you know, an article that talked about some recent Barna research, if you're familiar with Barna. And they're talking about how, you know, 50% of evangelicals now, essentially, don't believe that Jesus lived a sinless life, right? 50%, something like that. Um, 50% don't believe in the exclusive claims of Christianity. And we're, we're talking about evangelicalism, right? If we're talking about mainstream, you know, or, or mainline denominations, uh, well, that makes sense, right? But now we're talking about evangelicalism. Evangelicalism is being split along these very same lines, but it's not happening in the way that it happened in the past couple generations. It's happening through this new kind of woke, you know, um, social justice movement. And I understand because I was going through this when I was in college. This it was kind of it was very trendy when I was in college. People were talking about social justice all the time, um, but I didn't really understand the danger of it. But now here we are, fast forward twenty years, and it is it's everywhere. Man, you can't get away from this thing. It's all over the church, and really, that's that's why we've got to we've got to speak out and start doing something about this. Yeah. Well, what do you think that is, Dennis? That the church right now is they're largely quiet about talking about these issues, or it seems to me that actually joined the social justice movement. You know, um, yeah. yeah. Where's the spirit coming from? Well, you know, it's it's really smart. It's really smart uh, because, you know, classic socialism is, you know, it kind of flows from the ideas of Karl Marx, and it's really a philosophy of class warfare. It's a way of seeing the world through the lens of class warfare. And it's basically going to argue that those who are poor are poor because of the oppression of the rich, Right. That's that's the driving factor, and life really is class struggle, and so what you want to do is if you are poor, um, you want to band together with the other poor people, and you want to fight for... Um, you want to fight for power, especially, and money, and possession of all these different things. Now, the, the problem with this is that Christianity um, was very resistant to this. In fact, Karl Marx would talk about how Christianity and religion in general was the opiate of the of the people, right? And it kept them docile so that they didn't realize they were being oppressed. And so, you know, typically socialist movements have been very anti-religious. Um, but that's not the state of this kind of 21st century socialism. And this is, you know, um, because of the the influence of two things, the Frankfurt School. Um, Paul, I'm not sure how much you know about the Frankfurt School, but they basically decided they're going to take kind of this classic Marxism and they're going to, you know, reinterpret it. They're going to evolve it um, through the lens of race. And now it's not going to be so much about money, right? Classic Marxism is it's all about the, the capitalists versus the proletariat, the working class, right? But the Frankfurt School was really smart. They started to um, see this through the lens of race, um, and through other ways of seeing oppression. And um, obviously, this is this is the big one here in America. It's not so much about the rich versus the poor. It's more about the white and the black. 
And the second huge influence was the thing called liberation theology. Okay, liberation theology was really developed in Latin America, and you know it's always kind of had Marxist undertones, and you know a lot of a lot of um, convergence with Marxist thought. Um, but liberation theology became popular in America really through um, the Black Church in Black liberation theology, and this is this idea that God is on the side of the oppressed and the poor. And you start to read the scriptures through that lens, right? So you read about Israel, and Israel was oppressed by the Egyptians, and what happened? They cried out to God. God heard their cries, and he and He delivered them, and he saved them. But then what happened? They started to get rich. They started to become the oppressors. Then God was against them, and you know God judged them. And then Jesus comes along, and Jesus is the great liberator, something like that, right? And that's kind of this you know, liberation theology way of seeing the world and that dovetails perfectly with this you know uh, this frankfurt school socialism which is all about race and oppression and that's why those that's why you can meld these two ideas right and many christians especially here in california you know i know that you know if you're out in um you know arkansas or mississippi I'm guessing it's not as bad, although I bet it's it's bad on the campuses there too. Um, but here in California, it's omnipresent, right? It's just everywhere, you know, all of these campus ministries, Campus Crusade, InterVarsity. I even saw Chi Alpha, the leader of Chi Alpha, they're full-blown into social justice now. Like, this is like one of their main pillars. I think, I think Crew, you know, which is the new name for Campus Crusade for Christ— Crew is, you know, at least over here, full-blown social justice. They, they want to add it as one of the main pillars of their ministry. And um, and that's because they've bought into these liberation theology concepts and ideas. And, man, and this stuff is all up in the seminaries now, right? You go to Fuller Seminary. Fuller Seminary used to be, you know, the most popular or influential seminary in America. That place is all about social justice at this point. Right. Um, it's not just them. It's 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 in all of these um, prestigious seminaries. You'll, you're going to get a good dose of liberation theology. And so because of that, man, Christians, especially educated Christians, if you're educated through the university system or through any of these seminaries, um, man, you're very confused about all this kind of stuff. And you're and you're seeing that. Well, I guess on the surface, as you you know, as you're talking about liberation theology, as I first hear it, um, you know, if I were someone who first heard it, it, it seems a little attractive, right? Because you, sure. you're helping the oppressed. You're here to, you know, scriptures talk about, you know, uh, justice and helping the poor. Um, how is this, though, a dangerous doctrine in the church right now? I mean, if yeah. you were to go ahead and have a, a defense, an apology of, um, um, against this, how... how what would you say? You know, I think that might be one of the most important questions, um, you know, for this hour. Um, so the big problem with, you know, liberation theology is it really changes, it changes the gospel. I, I, I think it's a, it's a different gospel. Um, but that's not really apparent because like you said, the Bible does talk about oppression it does talk about how the gospel is good news for the poor. It does talk, you know, God does warn, Scripture does warn um, the rich um, against oppressing the poor. So Scripture does acknowledge that this type of thing happens, but the framework is totally different, okay? And let me let me give kind of both frameworks here. So kind of the classic, you know, the classic gospel is the idea that all of humanity is oppressed, 
okay? People, humans, are oppressed. And we're oppressed by spiritual powers, right? By the prince and the ruler of this world, right? We're, we're slaves because of our sin. Our sin has brought us under subjugation to these powers. And because of that, we're going to die in our sins, right? This is what Jesus is talking about. And that's why the classic gospel is, hey, um, you can be saved, right? You can be saved from your sin. You can be forgiven of your sin. You can be given eternal life. You can be transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, right? And you do that by putting your faith in Christ. And then once you put your faith in Christ, you're no longer oppressed, right? That's not who you are. You are a new creature. You're a new creation. Now you're a co-heir of Christ. Now you're incredibly wealthy, okay? But it's from a spiritual perspective, from a heavenly perspective, okay? That's because the classic gospel is really concerned with the, the kingdom of God, which is primarily a spiritual kingdom. So once we, be, once we join the kingdom of God by professing faith in Christ, we can't identify as oppressed or poor or, you know, or any of these things because that's not who we are any longer. And the idea is, yeah, we, in this life, we're poor by the standards of the world, right? We're, you know, we're pressed down but not destroyed, right? Paul says we're wasting away in our body, right? We're, we're the fools, right, of the world because we don't care about things like worldly wealth and prestige and things like this. Our, our life, our home is not here on the earth, but our residence is in heaven. Okay, this is all the classic gospel. Okay, that's totally incompatible with the liberation theology gospel, which is really very worldly and materialistic because it's really Marxist at its core. So from the liberation theology gospel, you're going to be identifying primarily with your class, your earthly class, right? So you're, you're an oppressed person or you're an oppressor, right? And you're saved... Not they're not con- so concerned with being saved from your sin and from eternal judgment. It's more you need to be saved from the 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 oppression of, of that you're undergoing by these oppressive classes. You know you need to be saved from the white man. You know, or if you're the white man, you need to be saved from your your white supremacy or your greed or you know whatever. Um, that's where the focus is all on. It's all on the here and now. And that's my big problem with it, you know? And and I think that there's so much scripture that reaffirms this, this paradigm, and it becomes so confusing if you hold to this liberation theology paradigm. So, for example, Peter, in his letters, he tells slaves, you know, um, if, if your master beats you, right? If your master beats you, um, well, if you did something bad, then you kind of deserve it, right? But... If he beats you and you didn't do anything bad, but you're but you're beaten and you bear it, right? But you bear it for the sake of Christ, then you'll be rewarded, right? And Paul says very similar things. He says, "Hey, if you're a slave, if you can get your freedom, go ahead and do it. But if you can't get your freedom, that's fine, right? Because why? The slave is Christ's free man, and a free man is Christ's slave. So from Paul's perspective." Yeah, look, if you can get your freedom, go ahead and do it. But it doesn't matter, really. Why? Because God is going to judge you. And if you're a slave, you still have the same obligation. Your life is no longer your own. You've been bought with a price. You don't have the freedom to do whatever you want, whatever you want. Whether you're a slave to a person or a slave to Christ, you're still a slave. 
Okay, you're still under obligation to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow the example that Christ gave you. And the idea is then you'll be rewarded in the age to come. So from Paul's perspective, if you find yourself a slave and you can't get your freedom, rejoice. You're, you're a co-heir with Christ. You're going to be greatly rewarded for every act of faithfulness, right? So there's no, I, there's no sense of, you, you know, you need to devote yourself to getting free and you need to complain and all this kind of, no, it's, it's rejoice. It's always, that's a consistent message of the gospel is rejoice, right? Rejoice, focus on everything that's noble and good. And, and don't worry, we all have to suffer in this life, right? In, in, according to the gospels and the new Testament, all, we all have to suffer in this life. We will have tribulation. We will have trials. And what they do is they prove our faith. That's why God allows us to be tested, why he allows us to go through hardship and suffering and persecution. And it's a totally different, it's a totally different way of living. And that's why we have a situation now where so many people have bought into this, this socialism, and that's why there's such a spirit of complaining. And you see this in the church too, this idea of lament, right? I'm lamenting because I'm oppressed. And I'm like, how can you, how can you be a Christian and be oppressed? Right? You were oppressed when you weren't a Christian, but now that you're a believer, you can't identify like that. No, you have to rejoice. And I, and I say this to somebody, look, I feel like I've faced persecution in my life. Lots of believers have faced persecution. We all have to face persecution in this life. And look, the persecution that we all suffer, this is light stuff. Okay, This is some weak persecution. Right, compared to historically what the church has faced in a lot of these places. The idea that if you are black, you're a black Christian in America, that you're deeply persecuted, I'm sorry, you're in deception, okay? Ain't none of us over here deeply persecuted. All of us, right, are suffering from light and momentary trials and hardships, and it's really, you know, but this is this is all light stuff in, 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 the, in the grand scheme of things. Yeah. And it seems to me what you're saying, Dennis, is that our identity and our hope is not here in this world. Absolutely. It's the age to come, you know, when we face Christ, he's going to reward us for what we've done on this earth. I mean, that's what, um, you know, Paul looked forward to, you know, to live as Christ, to die as gain. And it seems to me that the uh, social justice and kind of liberation theology that's um, um, uh, being espoused here is it's, we need to fix this in order for us to feel happy, basically. Like right. the, the hope is here on this earth. But if I could be devil's advocate here for a moment, what if I were on the other side and I were to hear this, it seems to me that it's um, um, we're trying to encourage them just to be apathetic to the injustice that's happening today. Is that is that what we're saying here? Yeah, for sure not. Okay, for sure not. What I'm trying to say is that, look, if if— if you're a black American, and, I, and forgive me, I'm, I'm pointing out the black community because really, you know, they're kind of at the top of this intersectional hierarchy of oppression in America, right? If you're if you're a transgender black female in America, okay, you're kind of at the top of this pyramid, and um, and look, you are one of the most, you're one of the richest, most privileged, you know, probably best educated people in the history of the world, okay? It this this idea, you know, uh, by global standards, the average poor person in America is fifty times richer than the average poor person in the rest of the world, right? Th- this idea that we can be living in America and be and feel like we're super oppressed people, it's such a delusion. 
okay? It is such a delusion. That's the issue, okay? I think there are really oppressed people in the world, okay? And and in this time, that's babies, okay? If you are a pre-born baby, yes, you are one of the most oppressed. You belong to that people group that is the most oppressed in history. So I'm not saying there aren't oppressed people that we need to fight for. I'm just saying it's a delusion to think that you're living in, you know, you're one of the richest, most educated people in the history of the world, and you think that you're oppressed. It's this delusion. And the, the problem with that is everybody now is fighting to be oppressed. We've got, you know, we got white people pretending to be black people. <laughs> you know, like, you, there's all these stories. Why? You know, you got Elizabeth Warren pretending to be Native American. Because you get benefits from it. It's actually selfish, right? They're actually trying to get benefits from this stuff. They're pretending to be oppressed because it wins them points. And it, it really is such a cowardice. It's such a cowardice that people can't stand up and say, grow up. You know, grow up. You're not oppressed. Okay, stop it. I understand you've had people be racist to you in your life. Welcome to life on planet Earth. Okay, everybody has stories of racism, okay? Do some people have more? Of course, right? But that that's, you're, if you're living in America, you have incredible rights. You have incredible freedoms. And those were paid for with a great cost. And it's such, a, it, we're such a spoiled generation that we can be living in the, the incredible luxury that we're living in. And again, I say this, I, I'm not, by American standards, I'm not rich. I live below the poverty line. Okay, I'm so wealthy. I'm so wealthy because I've visited other parts of the world, right? I've been to to slums in other nations. I've seen what life is like in other nations, and I know I am so incredibly blessed to be living here. And that's just one blessing. There's so many blessings. So that's the issue. It's the delusion. And the problem here, I say this, but the social justice movement is really a false justice movement, okay? It's a false justice movement. Why? Because it is, it's a counterfeit that is drawing away attention from the true justice movement. And what I mean by that is right now, you have probably millions of Christians in America who can't discern whether they should vote Republican or Democrat because they see two justice movements that both are fighting for. And what's happening is they see the need for justice for the, for the unborn, and they see a need for justice for minorities here in America. And because they're confused on this, they don't know what to do. So what's happening is this false justice movement is creating widespread confusion that is keeping us from being able to really fight against abortion and stamp it out. And that's my big problem with this movement. Um, I think it's a, I think it's a mass delusion and and it it I think it's killing us. It's killing us because it's really keeping us from being able to mobilize and end abortion. We could do this tomorrow if the church was united on this, but we're not. We're confused. Yeah, it just blows my mind. You know, if I can just be blunt here, that there are Christians who are voting Democrat. You know, um, I, I, I don't know. I, I can't understand why there are actually some who would vote for a candidate who is pro-infanticide, against religious liberty, um, theft. You know, socialism is essentially theft. I mean, can you shed some light on that, Dennis? Why, why are some Christians... Um, you know, abandoning their, I mean, are they abandoning their conscience? Or is it, from what yeah, I'm hearing yeah. from you, it's, it's as if they've elevated kind of the social justice of the oppression of minorities above 
something that's very clear and very, it's happening, and they agree that it's the most egregious evil that's being done in our society, that is murder of babies. But it seems that they're elevating kind of the social justice above that. Why is that? I mean, I don't get it. Well, Paul, right now, something like 97% of donations from journalists go to the Democratic Party, okay? Something like 97 to 98% of donations from Ivy League professors go to the Democratic Party as opposed to the Republican, right? Something like 99%, if I remember correctly, of executives in Hollywood and actors in Hollywood, their donations go to the Democratic Party. What we have is we have a complete domination of these fields, the media, of the university system and education, Hollywood, entertainment, these influential, these incredibly influential cultural centers in America are dominated by the left. And what that means is that the vast majority of people, if you're not a serious student of this stuff, you're getting all, all the left's perspective on everything. And you're barely even hearing the right. And that's that's the way it is right now. And I think that's why we're in the middle of an incredible mass brainwashing. Because, again, this is happening all over the world to various degrees. And um, so for you and I, you know, we're kind of plugged into different information sources. Today, look, the left and the right are living in totally different worlds of information. Right? The right is listening to all its own pundits they don't trust the people on the left and likewise the people on the left they're listening to all their own media and pundits and they have they have the uh, the legitimacy of being legacy media right new york times washington post these are very respectable cnn these are very respectable institutions and uh, until recently you know they had fairly objective i mean they've always been a little left leaning but they've been had a commitment to objectivity, and um, and look, that's that's changed in the past 20, 30 years pretty dramatically at this point, right? But they're still carrying on the credibility that they've earned, you know, for decades uh, of building up these institutions. So that's why there's this mass confusion. And I say this because I talk to people all the time, right? I talk to people, and if you're just plugged into, you know, what are the respectable institutions and you listen to them, well, they're all saying the same thing. And so they're looking at people like us, and they're like, man, these guys are crazy, right? Why do they, how could they possibly think all that? And again, that's where most, especially, you know, I, me and you are, are Asian. Um, I'm half Asian. And we're pretty well-educated, our cultures, right? So everyone that I know, all my friends, they've gone through the university system, right? Many of them have master's degrees and, and, and postgraduate degrees and all this kind of stuff, and... They're very informed by this side of the spectrum, right? The right, we're very poorly um, spreading our information. Like, where do you where do you go to get information on the right? The, there's only a handful of great sources out there, right? Everybody's on YouTube, YouTube being Ben Shapiro, right? Because he's one of the few great resources. One dude, <laughs> right? It's like one dude against this entire, you know wall of media and professors and you know all this kind of stuff and 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 that's what i mean like most of my students i'm the only person who's giving them this perspective in their life the only person with any kind of credibility right who's actually studied this stuff 
They don't know hardly anyone else, right? So if if I'm not saying what I'm saying, I know they're all going to become, you know, very uh, influenced by the left, right? And that's the way it is everywhere right now. Would you say that it's pretty clear um, what the values of um, the left are, like what their values are? Like, let's say, you know, even if you're not, uh, you know, uh, getting the news on, on the right wing side, if you were to hear it from the left side, I mean, it's clear. They're, people, everyone knows that they're pro-choice, pro-abortion. Everyone knows that they're, you know, uh, uh, against religious liberty, basically, if you're, if you're Christian, right? Um, and all these other things. Would, would you agree that it's pretty clear on that end? Well, you know, the thing about politics is it's all a, it's a game of semantics, right? So, you know, even the language of pro-choice and pro-life, they're both pros, right? Nobody's anti-choice or anti-life, <laughs> you know what I mean? And that's the game here. So that's why it's, it's so confusing. So the narrative that's out there right now is that the left is, you know, pro-oppressed and pro-minority, something like that, right? I would argue that they're neither, but they're they're good at the marketing because again they control all of those you know um legacy institutions right so they're marketing that message over and over we're the party of you know helping the oppressed we're the party of standing for the downtrodden all this kind of stuff and so you know it, 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 yes that's it that is the message i would argue that the 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 conservatives are far better in at helping the poor and do way more of it Right, but that's that's not the the message that people you know nor that's not the way people normally think about it. Because the reason I'm I'm asking that is, um, I I feel that a lot of pastors know that you know a lot of the left's ideas are um, antithetical to Christianity. You know, I think many pastors agree on that, but for some reason, um, they're not willing to talk about it. You know, they're not willing to engage and say, hey, that's evil. Don't vote for a candidate that's, you know, that's uh, anti, anti-Christianity or, or doesn't believe in our values and that would, you know, um, pass laws that would, uh, you know, uh, they're, they're, they're not godly, basically. So I guess it, it seems clear to me, you know, so I, and I know and I feel I could be wrong, but a lot of pastors see that too. But they're almost, um, they don't want to rock the boat. They don't want to talk about it because it might offend. Sure. But I don't know. It doesn't seem like the example that I see in scriptures, especially from what, you know, Apostle Paul and Peter, I mean, they spoke against evil. So why is there um, so many pastors quiet and almost, if I may, uh, kind of scared to talk about these issues? Yeah, well, I'll just say, in my experience, if you're a younger pastor, say you're under 40, um that that what you just described is not clear because again most of the young pastors and the young church leaders are very influenced by liberation theology at this point whether they understand it in those terms or not and so for them the democratic party is doing a better job at helping the poor and the oppressed and the republican party is not right but i understand what you're saying because for most older people and those who are more on the right um yeah they they tend to see it that way right they tend to be more conservative um, and they see like the the Republican Party is standing um, for the unborn and for religious freedom and for a lot of these things, and so it's very clear for them. But they tend to be more um, they want to be silent, right? They don't want to talk about it. They don't want to be um, 
They don't want to be political. And you know, this is this is really um, this is this is a huge problem. Okay, what's happening is if you're on the left, you're actually encouraged and trained to be an activist. If you're on the right, you're encouraged and trained to be silent on all this stuff. That and that's a huge part of the problem that we have here, right? So. If you're a more liberal pastor, you tend to be very loud about it. You tend to speak out about these things, encourage your people to vote, et cetera, et cetera. If you're a, a pastor that leans f more on the right, the idea is, you know, I think, you know, John MacArthur kind of summarizes this idea. Well, the, the politics isn't what we're about, right? We're about the kingdom of God, and, you know, we're about saving souls for eternity and sin, and so we don't want to speak into those politics. We don't want to get enmeshed in all of that kind of stuff. You know, we don't we don't want to sully our hands, right? We want to keep things spiritual, keep things holy, not offend people needlessly, and save their souls, right? I think that's, you know, the best way that I can describe their mentality. Now, I, I disagree with it, but I, I think that that's their heart. And, um, you know, and I'll say that I, I understand I understand it because I, I, I was the exact same way, you know, probably until 15 years ago or so, 16 years ago um, is when I started to turn. But I always remember when I was in college, I had a friend who was part of the college Republicans on campus, and he would always try and convince me to get involved in stuff. And I was always like, hey, man, I'm not about politics. I'm all about the kingdom. You know, I'm about prayer meetings. I'm about evangelism. I'm about revival. And I don't really get why you're so into politics. You know, that was kind of my response to him. And it really wasn't until later on um, when I started discipling a lot of people that I started to see how much overlap there was, right? And I started to see that when people get into, the Christians, when they get into leftist politics, when they get into social justice, when they get into activism, what starts to happen for many of them is their hearts begin to drift away from the scriptures, and they start to become offended and bothered by aspects of the scriptures that don't that are not in line with that more socialist worldview, right? And when I started to see that, and I started to see so many Christians over the years who have become more liberal in their theology and have kind of abandoned um, kind of traditional evangelical doctrine, things like that, well, then I realized, oh, you know what? This is, it's, this is intermixed, right? It, it's, it's an issue of worldview, and worldview is going to touch on politics sometimes. It's going to touch on these other things. And then I started seeing it in the scripture all over the place, right? I started seeing Jesus speaking on issues that were very politicized. I started seeing Paul speaking on issues. I started seeing Old Testament prophets speaking on issues that were politicized. And really, that's the reason why they get persecuted. You know, like, generally people don't care about religious, um, you know, religious arguments, right? At different times in history, they do. Right, but a lot of times it's when religious beliefs become get into politics. That's when you start getting really persecuted, and we've seen that throughout history. Right, um, you know Bonhoeffer in, in in Germany started speaking out against the Nazis, and you know he got persecuted for it. And that's that's common, right? So I say this to say that there are times where the church needs to speak into politicized issues, and I think that's exactly what Jesus did. Right, I think when Jesus was was questioned about taxes. Should we pay taxes to Caesar? It says that they were trying to catch him in a trap. Why was that a trap? Well, because that was an extremely political issue in his day, right? So they're basically asking him, you know, do you, what do you think about abortion? What do you think about gay marriage, right? They're, they're putting him on the spot in, in a way that no matter what he says, he's going to make a lot of enemies, right? 
And I think Jesus actually answered it pretty clearly, right? Render unto Caesar's that which is Caesar's, right? And so what he's saying there is, look, these, you need to pay your taxes, right? And render to God what's God's. And he keeps the heart correct. So he's not getting political in the sense of he's saying it's all about politics, but he's saying, hey, the kingdom of God is the most important thing, right? Give your heart to God, right? But you also have to pay taxes. And I'm sure that offended a lot of those who would identify as zealots in his time because they hated Rome and they hated Roman oppression. But again, you don't see Jesus becoming a, a, a revolutionary, right? You don't see him, right, trying to foment rebellion against Rome. In fact, many of the, much of the stuff that he says... <clears throat> Sounds like the opposite, right? Where he's saying, you know, if someone strikes you on the cheek, turn the other cheek. If they take your cloak, right, give them your coat. Right? These are these are all aspects of Roman oppression against Jews, right? Where Roman soldiers would strike Jews, force them to carry things with them. And Jesus is saying, bear it and love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, right? <clears throat> None of that was in the spirit of, um, you know, that kind of Marxist spirit that, that um, you know, typifies a lot of this liberation theology and teaching that's out there today. Mm. You know, I guess to touch on that, and uh, there's this kind of this uh, heart behind that where Jesus, yeah, he did talk about politics, right? And he did kind of, you know, answer their questions, but he wasn't quite a political activist, right? So right. should we... Uh, Christians, um, wh wh where's where's the fine line here of being kingdom-minded and engaging politics, but not making politics an idol? So that seems to be kind of the accusation that we have um, from others who, you know, if we're, we're talking about politics, all of a sudden they start to say, hey, you know, politics is an idol to you. You're not really about the kingdom. So how would you respond to to something like that? Yeah, it's a great question, and honestly, one I could go on for at length, so I don't want to be too wordy here. Um, but I will say this. Um, uh, in a constitutional republic, which is you know what we have, in a democratic you know society, we are, we are the rulers, right? The people have the decision, right? We vote for the people that make the decision, so the power is given to the people. And so it's all of a sudden our responsibility. What you see in a lot of Christianity is, um, a lot of the scriptures, is it's like, hey, don't worry so much. Pray for the king, right? Pray for the king that he would make wise decisions. Pray for those in authority so that you may live peaceable lives, right? Because the idea is if your authorities make terrible decisions, unwise decisions, you're going to pay for it, Right. In a republic or a democracy, we're the rulers. We're the ones who have a direct say in all these things, okay? And I think Scripture is pretty clear about this idea that God exalts nations for righteousness, okay? And he tears them down for sin. I, I think that's what the Scripture means when it talks about his sovereignty, that God is ruling the nations of the earth, and that he is going to raise up and lift up the righteous nations— and he is going to punish and discipline the evil nations. And I think we I think we generally see that throughout history, okay? And so that's why as Christians we need to be a voice in our nation. Like we are the light in the darkness. I think that's what Jesus is talking about, right? When he talks about us being salt and light in Matthew chapter 5, right? The idea of salt is that it preserves, right? We're preserving our nation from spoiling, right? And and it's sin that spoils the nation. And how do we do that? Well, we act righteously and we speak the truth in love, 
right? And so we're, that's the idea of us being the light in the darkness. We're speaking the truth. And this is the idea, because Jesus says, the world cannot hate me, because it cannot love me, because I testify that its deeds are evil, right? And that's the idea that I speak out, so that the, the world hates me for it, right? And he says, everybody who does what is right comes to the light, so that their deeds may be exposed, right? But those who do what's evil, right, they don't want to come to the light, because they don't want their deeds to be exposed, Okay, and so that's the idea of light here. So I say that to say um, that's why as Christians, I think Martin Luther King Jr. said this best, right? We are the moral conscious of the nation, right? We have an obligation to declare what's right and what's good. Now, we understand that our personal destinies are not tied to the destiny of our nation, right? When the nations are raging or when they're shaking, I'm not going to be shaken, right? Because I'm part of a kingdom that cannot be shaken, so if America is judged harshly by the Lord, might I suffer for it? For sure. But ultimately, I'm going to heaven. Okay? So that's why I'm not freaking out if terrible judgment comes against America. Okay? Will I be a little scared? Yeah. Just being honest. Okay? Um, but, but, but yeah, I'm not going to give in to fear and anxiety right over it and feel like the world is ending. Right? No, 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 no. No, I'm going to declare what's right to the nation because I I have an obligation to disciple the nation, right? To I'm, I'm to disciple it, to teach it, to obey all of Jesus' commands, right? That's the mandate that we're given from Matthew chapter 28. So that's the responsibility of every believer. But we're not to think that, um, you know, we're not to identify primarily as Americans or as Koreans or as whatever, right? That's our secondary identity. Those are much less. Our primary identity is in Christ, Okay, that's my 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 um, citizenship is in heaven. I'm part of a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Okay, and that's my primary way. So, I think from that perspective, then yes, speak into politics, but don't idolize it. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, because the uh, what people are saying is. Uh, you know, other Christians are saying is that our citizen is in heaven, so therefore, don't even focus on American politics or worldly politics because we are citizens of heaven. Yeah, the, the man, those Old Testament prophets—they really messed up, huh? <laughs> you know, the, gosh, what's their problem? Always talking about you know national things. You just enlightened me right now, Dennis, because yeah. um, our job is to disciple nations. But we're doing this because the nations will be judged one day. Right. You know, so it's it's not just about us personally. It's about for others. So it is loving others as yourself because you know the wrath of God is coming. So America, wake up. So it's not just us trying to win a culture war. Because that, you know, when, when I see other Christians write about, you know, um, you know, other Christians getting into politics, it's that, oh, you guys are just trying to win over the culture. But, you know, that's not that's not what it is. We're not just trying to win them over to, you know, kind of a culture thing, but we're trying to win them over to the kingdom. So that's kind of um, the accusations that they have towards oh, yeah. this, our side, too. Absolutely. Look, the message of Jesus was repent, right? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John the Baptist was preaching repentance, all right? John uh, Paul stands up in Athens in Acts chapter 17 and he commands them all. He says, the God of heaven commands that all men repent for their idolatry, right? And to put their faith in the one that he has sent who will judge the world, speaking of Jesus. So the you see again and again that, that God's people are calling their nations to repentance, 
all right? And does that start with allegiance to God? Well, of course, right? Of course that starts with allegiance to Jesus, right? But it's in, it's in everything we're calling the nation's repentance and to righteousness. And I hear this all the time that we can't expect non-Christians to act like Christians. And my response to that is, isn't that what the whole judgment is about? On what basis would God judge anyone then? Right? Because he expects people to act like Christians. Right? Now, hear me. I understand I'm not going to get freak out because a non-Christian is not obeying Jesus. Right? I'm not like, oh my gosh, how can they do this? What's wrong with them? And, and obsessive out or something like that. But I'm saying it's my obligation to call them to repent and to do what's right in the sight of God. And to warn them that Christ is coming to judge the world, right? He's going to come and judge everyone according to his standards. So my job is to warn you. That's how I represent Christ. I warn you so that you have a witness. Somebody who has is testifying and giving you the truth. And guess what? That's what this whole Christianity thing is about. So a lot of times in the church, we, you know, we've spiritualized this to be like, the only thing we're supposed to preach is, is Christ. And, and nothing else, right? We just try to convince people about Christ, um, but we don't. We shouldn't talk to them about anything else. And I'm sorry, I just don't see that example in the scriptures. I think you see, in the scriptures, you see all of these figures calling their nations to righteousness and to repentance. And by the way, that's what the church has done in history, okay? Everybody, you know, hates it when Christians are standing up condemning abortion today because they're like, you know, oh, let, let them do whatever they want. Did, guess what? Christians in the 19th century who condemned slavery were treated much the same way. It's pretty much the exact same, right? Mind your own business, right? But we look at that and we're like, well, thank God those Christians spoke up and ended slavery, right? Because that's how this works, okay? That's what the church has done throughout history, that we've pointed to things that other people weren't concerned with, and we've said, this is wrong. This is morally wrong, and we have an obligation to stop this thing. If Christians in the West had not spoken up on slavery, we would still have slavery. Okay, there's this weird belief today, you know, that slavery would have eventually passed away. That's not how things work. Okay, that's not how things work. Slavery was a worldwide, timeless institution when it was abolished. It was all over the world. It was in every major empire. Okay, it was everywhere. The idea that slavery was morally wrong and should be abolished by force, that was the thing that was new. Okay, but that was Christians in America, in England. England really played a huge role, right? Christians in England, um, but generally in Western Christian nations, rose up and said, "Hey, we're going to put a stop to this thing," and they did it by force. The British sent, you know, they had the most powerful navy in the world. They sent, you know, um, ships off the coast of Africa. Right to try and capture slave vessels, they sent they sent ships to Brazil. They forcibly stopped their slave trade. They informed the Ottoman Sultan. They said, "Hey, we're putting an end to your slave trade." And you can see the correspondence. He's so confused. He's like, "What? You're stopping our slave trade? What do you mean?" Right? Like we've always had slaves. You know, people don't understand this. You know, only less than five percent of slaves from Africa went to North America. The vast majority of slaves went to other parts of the world right? It's not, slavery was everywhere, but it was Christians in the West that got this conviction that we need to put an end to this great evil, and and we did it. And thank God we did it, right? Thank God we did it. And that's the same tradition that we're talking about today when we're saying, hey, we need to put an end to abortion. 
We need to forcibly end this thing, right? And we're following the tradition of the abolitionists of the 18th and 19th centuries. Yeah. All this talk about warning, uh, Dennis, um, you don't sound like a popular pastor. Uh, I'm, I'm super popular with the people that love me. <laughs> Choking aside, um, I don't hear this a lot from pastors on the pulpit, though. You know, calling the nation to repent, you know, calling out the sins of the nations and all that. There's a lot of soft messages out there. Yeah. I haven't really heard much of this. You know, what are your thoughts on that? Why, why is that? Well, you know, look, I don't know how many churches there are in America. There's like hundreds of thousands of churches. Um, I think the average size church is something like 80 people, you know. So most churches are very small. And I would say this, you know, m- most pastors that I sit down and talk with are phenomenal, Right are great. Um, you know, we all have our strengths and weaknesses. Um, but you can see my, look, I talk to pastors all the time and I could see that there's this general desire. They really, most of them really love the Lord, really love people, are trying to help people. Okay. Um, but what's happened, you know, in the grand, you know, when we look at the big picture here is there are a relatively few large ministries that have incredible influence right, over the discourse in America, and, you know, ministries copy them, and they're invited to speak at all the big, you know, conferences, and they write all the books that everybody reads, and all this kind of stuff, and the fashion has been, over the past, you know, I don't know how many, 20, 30 years, or whatever, has been, like, this seeker-sensitive megachurch movement, where we're going to try and minimize all the controversial stuff, and we're just going to be super affirming, and loving, and, you know, I think Rick Warren said, you know, you just got to find the keys to somebody's heart. You know, anybody will be a Christian if you can just find that key, right? They just need, you know, donuts after service. And if you just give them donuts, they will come to your service, right? And then they'll meet Jesus. You know, I'm obviously I'm, I'm, I'm you know, poking fun at it a little bit. But that's, that, that's a very popular kind of idea, right? We need to accommodate as much as possible. What we, want, we want to remove every potential stumbling block right? And look, I understand the heart of this, right? The heart, as Paul says, I became, you know, all things to all men that I might win some, right? That's the heart of this. We're going to try and contextualize this gospel by removing anything that would get in the way of the core message, okay? Again, the problem is you don't see Jesus and the apostles doing that, (laughs) right? Jesus was preaching repentance. He offended everybody, right? He, look, if Jesus didn't do miracles, that guy would never have been as popular as he was, all right? Like, if that guy didn't do miracles, you know, he would have just been a really weird storyteller, and everybody would be like, he's weird, I don't understand anything he's saying, right? Because he's talking in weird parables, and nobody gets it, okay? Um, But the miracles is what drew people, right? And, you know, John the Baptist was harsh, as, as far as we can tell, right? And, Paul caused riots everywhere. They called him a troublemaker. That great troublemaker has come here is what they said about him when he came, you know. And that's because the the model has always been you have to preach repentance, okay, and you have to say things that are offensive to your culture. That's why Jesus says the world cannot love me, right? They can't love me because I testify that his deeds are evil. And so that's why I have a major bone to pick with this style of church leadership that is all about numbers and, uh, 
you know, it, and positivity and nice facilities. And look, this is very still very much in vogue right now. But I think what it's 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 breeding is look. All of this seeker-sensitive stuff, has it resulted in a great revival? Do we have more Christians now than ever? No, it's precisely the opposite. It's led to the greatest backsliding in our nation's history. And that's the problem when we do stuff like this. We trade long-term fruit for short-term gains, something like that, right? Like, I, I, I have this conviction that I would rather have five serious believers that I'm discipling, they're true disciples of the Lord. I would rather have that than a large group of 500 and and none of them are are really serious about giving their life for the kingdom and things like that, okay? Now, I, I understand that no church is, is one or the other, right? But I'm just saying, I think Jesus had the same idea. Okay, Jesus at one point had the entire region coming out to follow him. Right, he said he had five. He fed five thousand, but you know, many scholars will say that there were many more women and children. The entire regions were, were coming out to follow him, and that's at the height of his popularity. This John chapter six, he preaches his most controversial sermon, which is, "You have to eat my flesh and drink my blood." And it says after that point, many stopped following him because they're like, "This guy's freaking crazy," you know. And Jesus could have explained it, right? He could have been like. Wait a second, wait a second, guys. I'm not talking literal cannibalism here, right? He doesn't explain it. That's the crazy thing. He does, he he lets the offended go. He says, blessed are those, right, who are not offended. Blessed are those who are not stumbled by me, right? And he's testing them. And this is the part I think that many church leaders don't understand. God could save everyone in America if he wanted to, Right? He's able to do that. He doesn't want to do that. And that's the part that I think messes with people's theology, right? No, God desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of him. Well, yeah, there's a part of his heart that wants that. But there's also a part of his heart that's willing to test the hearts of men, right? And he tests us, and he lets us go in our sin. That's that's the whole idea of Romans 1, right? Because they did not consider the knowledge of God something worthy to be held on to. Right, he gave them over to their sinful desires, and that's what you see consistently. That God judges nations in that way, where He'll sometimes give them over to their sinful desires, right? And that, in and of itself, is a judgment, and that's the problem in America. That's exactly what we've done. You ask Christians today, "Hey, what do you know about the great revivals in our nation's history? What do you know about the First Great Awakening? What do you know about Azusa Street? What do you know, right, about the Student Volunteer Missions Movement? Most Christians I talk to about these things have no freaking clue what I'm talking about. Some of them, you know, got like one day, right, where they studied that in history class, right? Aren't These were incredible moves of God that were responsible for much, like, our nation was birthed out of the First Great Awakening. If there was no First Great Awakening, our nation would be completely different, Okay, that's where we got the idea that all men are equal in the sight of God, are created equal in the sight of God. That was really the influence of the First Great Awakening. They don't teach that anymore, right? Americans don't know about this stuff. And 
This is exactly what Paul's talking about in Romans 1, this idea that they did not consider the knowledge of God as a thing worthy right, to be held on to. They let it go. They, they disdained it. They, they despised the knowledge of God. That's the idea that you don't pass it on to the, the subsequent generations. That's why God told the Israelites, be very careful, right? Tell your children about these things that I've done. Set up these memorials so that they won't forget about how I delivered you out of Egypt. Because if they do, their hearts will turn to other gods. So be very careful. That's what he tells the Israelites. And we don't understand it works the same way today. We have to pass down the knowledge of God to our young people. That's why the command in Ephesians, fathers, right? Bring your children up in the fear of the Lord and the knowledge of God. Right? Don't let them forget about what I've done, right? Because if they do, then I will judge them. Right? That's the implication. Always, we have an obligation to pass down the knowledge of God to the subsequent generations. And what we have today is we have a generation that has forgotten about everything that God has done in our nation's history. They're so unthankful, so ungrateful. We're the, literally the richest, most powerful nation in the history of the world. And we don't give any credit to God. The, the average American gives no credit to God for this. Right? And I, I always try to impress on our students. Like, we don't understand, you know... World War II, just to point out, you know, a simple thing. World War II, we, we make all these video games, right? You ever play those Call of Duty video games, right? And it's, oh, yeah, Call of Duty. It's fun, right? And it's like, dude, we were just the best, right? We went in there and we killed all those Nazis and like, yeah, we did it, right? But I always try and tell people, look, we, World War II, 80% of World War II was Russians and Germans killing each other, Okay. That was really the vast majority of that war, all right? Um, you know, we got really lucky that a German scientist immigrated over here and developed nuclear technology so we didn't have to invade Japan, all right? We, we, there's so many signs of God's blessing. We broke all their codes, right? In the Pacific Theater, we broke all the codes, right? There's so many signs of blessing that we, we got so lucky is what it is. If Hitler hadn't betrayed Stalin... There's no way we could have successfully resisted the Soviet Union and, you know, and Nazi Germany. At one point, it was literally England fighting alone, right, as the only major power before America got into the war. I look at World War II, and I see the hand of God, the providence of the Lord over it. I'm like, oh my gosh, God, you blessed us so much, right? All of our enemies destroyed themselves. And what happened after World War II? We got so rich because we sold everyone Coke after the war. We were the only country with factories left standing, right? We just sold them everything. And what happened to our stock market? It it grew exponentially. We got so rich in the aftermath of World War II, even though all, you know, many most of the other nations were devastated by that war. We're so incredibly blessed. And we have such little thankfulness for it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's yeah. The generation that we're in, it's, it's almost kind of, it's not almost, but very narcissistic, you know, um, not thankful, um, coveting everything, just, God, what was that verse in First Timothy? Like, in the last days, you'll have, man, I feel bad right now, I don't know my Bible, but you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, like, of course, you know, of course, um, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, so how do we, how do we encourage the church to start thinking about the judgment to come. 
how do we encourage the church to start practicing their civic responsibility to, because from, from what you're telling me, Dennis, Christ is going to come and judge the nations. There's going to be a judgment for individual Christians. Yeah. There's going to be a judgment for nations, right? And also a judgment for um, unbelievers. So one thing that we don't really talk about or touch on is the judgment of nations. So how do we, how do we start encouraging Christians to start focusing on those, on those judgments? Well, I think you're, you're bringing up the basic theme of it. And, you know, about, I don't know, 16 years ago now, um, maybe a little less than that, actually, maybe about 13 years ago, God really started to speak to me and um, to a number of us at, at um, you know, my ministry that I was with back then about, about the fear of the Lord. And look, we had planted that ministry with, um, you know, a, a love for, for resting in God and, and loving his affection and enjoying God. And then God really started to speak to us about how we needed to start emphasizing the fear of the Lord. And it was a correction, it was a rebuke, right? And, you know, that happens. You, you fall in love with one truth, right? And you just, you see it all over the scripture. And, uh, but you can get really out of balance because every truth in scripture has corollary truth that holds it in check, if that makes sense, right? It's God is, is very kind. Paul says, you know, behold the kindness and the severity of God, right? Those truths hold each other in check, right? If you just talk about his kindness all the time, then you get a God who's like, you know, a big fluffy teddy bear, and he just loves you all the time, right? And if you just focus on the severity, then he's just like this fire-breathing guy who just wants to punish everybody, right? You need you need both, right, to get an accurate picture of who God is. And I say all this because um, I had focused so much on the joy of the Lord and his great love and his mercy, and God just rebuked the heck out of me. And he said, hey, you also need to learn about the fear of the Lord. And that started a season of my life where I really started to study it and pray into it. It wasn't just me. It was a number of um, my friends also. And all of us, because we got this revelation around the same time, we all um, have a strong value for that. And the fear of the Lord is about this idea of judgment. It's very connected with it, right? And this is a truth that's very neglected in our times where Christians don't understand what the judgment is all about. For most Christians, it's, it, it's a binary judgment right? It's just heaven or hell. And by the way, if you're in Christ, that's already been taken care of. So you don't have to worry about any of that stuff anymore, right? And a lot of preaching is really oriented towards stop worrying about about anything negative, right? It's all over and done with. You're not supposed to worry about that ever again. And what, what we've done is we've created a theology that has inoculated the church against all the warnings of scripture, right? All the warnings we brush off, they're always for somebody else, for some other people. And I'm, I'm really concerned with that, that um, we need to start emphasizing the fear of the Lord, not because that's all we want to see. We want to see his kindness and his mercy and his love also. But the fear of the Lord has been neglected in our time, right? And the scripture says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And that's why so much of the church has become open to this delusion with socialism and liberation theology, in my opinion. It's because we've forgotten the fear of the Lord that's why we've gone so far into all of this hyper-grace teaching, all of this prosperity teaching, all of the shallow Christianity, but it's the fear of the Lord that gives us the ability to have deep maturity, right? Hebrews talks about maturity being the ability to, to discern good and evil, right, by constant practice. We practice good and evil, therefore we are able to discern it well. And, um, you know, 
that idea of the fear of the Lord is the thing that makes us into mature believers, right? I, I say this, like, you have to have vision, a dream of what God's calling you in your life to do and to be, and then you have to have discipline. If you don't have discipline, then you're just a dreamer. And I got to say, that's, I think, how many Christians are right now. They're dreamers. They dream that they're going to be great, you know, greatly rewarded in the age to come. I'm concerned that many believers are going to get to Judgment Day, and they're going to be shocked. They're going to be shocked at the judgment. They're going to be shocked at how strict his standards of judgment are. And what I mean by that is many Christians believe that they can practice sin, right, and, and still be saved. And Scripture warns about that very clearly, in my opinion ones that you cannot practice sin. I I was shocked at how many believers think that you can be be, you know, living with your boyfriend, your girlfriend and still be a Christian. I I need to tell me you, no, you're not a Christian. Okay? By scripture standard, if you're practicing sexual relations with somebody and you're not married, okay, you're not a believer. That's a that's a standard that has not been practiced because we're not disciplining in the church over this kind of stuff these days. Right? And it's not just that. Scripture talks about the wicked and lazy servant, right? The one who wastes all the resources that they're given has little to show. And I got to say, I think a lot of Christians are going to end up in that camp where they get to judgment day, they still receive eternal life, right? But they get no rewards because they're counted as wicked and lazy servants. And that's a real concern, right? So emphasizing the fear of the Lord, his standards, his severity, what that does is it gives us grace because you need that, right? It's it's the same thing. Like with my kids, if I just say, hey, make sure you guys clean your room and make your bed and brush your teeth before you go to sleep, and I don't tell them what will happen if they don't, <laughs> right? I just say, hey, make sure you do it. Will kids do it? No, okay? Any parent knows, right? They're not going to do it, right? Why? Because you have to show enforcement. It's the same thing. If you have a law in the books, but it never gets enforced, Right, if the police never give tickets or never arrest anyone, right? Do people follow that law? No. It's all about enforcement. And that's the problem here. We've got to tell believers that God is warning that he's going to do these things. And then they've got it's got to be clear for them. If they don't know what the consequences are, they're not going to be able to do it. And so I think this this idea of teaching the fear of the Lord, teaching about the warnings in scripture for believers and for unbelievers right? And then all of that gives the ability to live holy lives, right? It's by, it's because of the consequences. There's consequences for doing what's right, the rewards that we're going to get, okay? And then there's consequences for doing evil, and they both matter a lot. And the clearer you can see those consequences, the more grace that you're going to have to do what's right. Yeah. And then you mentioned that on the flip side from the punishment or or losing rewards he gives incentives that the more you do for his kingdom the more you think about the age to come and invest and store riches there the rewards you'll get will be eternal right absolutely absolutely why why are churches talking about this i know there are some pastors that do but um this seems to be kind of a controversial uh, uh doctrine in christianity why is that I mean, I have to speculate. Um, I, I think it, it's because it fl- it seemingly flies into the in the face of the idea of total depravity, right? Which, if you're in a more Calvinist system of theology, you know, total pr- depravity is the idea that 
you know, it, it's impossible. There's nothing good in you that could merit salvation, right? And um, there's no way you can add to uh, or, or do something that's righteous, right? All our righteous deeds are like filthy rags, right? That's the idea. And so um, if, you, if you believe that doctrine really strongly, what happens is it, it informs your whole understanding that there's really nothing that we could do that could be worthy of reward, something like that. Right. I, that's why I think I think the doctrine is flawed in the sense that, to be clear, I don't believe there's anything that we can do to earn salvation. I just don't think that that's that was ever in the mind frame of anybody. Right. Salvation is a gift. Right. For belonging to Him, not for being good enough or something like that. Okay. Um, but the more you know, you are steeped in that line of thinking. I think the harder it is to think. Okay. Now all of a sudden because I'm in Christ, now my deeds have worth, and they're, they make me worthy of reward or something like that, or merit. Or, you know, I think that all of a sudden it just creates such a, a, a conflict, you know, a, a thought there. Um, but yeah, I think the scriptures are pretty clear about it. I think it talks about it many times. I think it, it makes it way easier to understand what Paul's talking about in a number of his passages when he talks about, I long to share in the fellowship of Christ's suffering so that I may share in his life, right? That's the idea of, of suffering for Christ equating with greater reward right? Um, it talks about, I beat my body and I make it my slave, right? I think that's the idea of, you know, of disciplining himself, right? So that he can get great rewards, okay? Not so that he can get eternal life. Because again, that bring that makes it sound like works-based salvation. Um, so I think that it makes a lot of the New Testament a lot easier to understand. First Corinthians chapter 3, when Paul talks about um, being saved as though through the flames, speaking of those who get no reward because their deeds are all burned up when they're tried in the in the judgment. Um, but those who um, who do do things that uh, have deeds that last, right, then they will receive a reward, right? And um, so I, I do think there are many scriptures that are very explicit about this. Of course, Jesus talks about it more than anybody else, right? Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount, right, he talks about don't store up your treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, store them in heaven. Blessed are you when you're persecuted, right, for you have great reward, Right, Peter and John went away rejoicing because they knew they'd been kind of worthy to suffer for the gospel. Right, Jesus in Revelations two and three says, "You know, my rewards are with me. I'm coming soon. My rewards are with me." Right, blessed one overcomes. He offers these rewards. I think all of this makes no sense if you don't if you don't have a paradigm for rewards. They're just figurative, right? And that has no compelling power. Right, it's not compelling anybody. It's it's like I'm going to give you a reward. <laughs> right, I'm going to give you a big hug. Because I'm so proud of you, right? Well, that that is that is that I don't want to totally make fun of that because I think there is a huge part that that that's true. But I do think that Scripture is talking about literal rewards that we're going to receive. Ooh, that's going to be a scary day. My gosh, I mean, I, yeah. just imagining standing before Christ and everything is laid bare, every thought every intention, every word, every spoken will be under review. How do you think you'll do, D? I've got a whole thing. I think we should probably save it for another podcast. I have a whole, you know, mini teaching on how I think I will score at the judgment <laughs> if I were to have it today. Um, yeah, we'll save that for another one. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Any other thoughts? <laughs> Um, I think this is probably a goody, pretty good place to, to wrap it up for our first episode, man. Yeah. I want to say, uh, Paul, great job. Thanks for um, you know asking all those really great piercing questions and for giving your um, perspective on a lot of stuff. I think um, you know this is our, our first episode. 
We're going to have a lot more opportunity to talk together and to flesh out a lot of what we think, and we're going to have great guests on um, you know, to interview and talk with also. Any other things that you want to preview for our listeners? Um, yeah, no, I'm just uh, excited to really delve deep into a lot of these topics. Um, I, I'm so thankful for you, Dennis, for being a voice right now, um, and especially talking about you know, these controversial topics. You know, um, um, definitely in this climate now, it's not fun talking about it because you're getting a lot of backlash and getting persecuted. But uh, I just want to thank you for being that example of contending for, you know, a lot of these values that are not easily accepted in society today. So, um, yeah, I'm excited to talk about, you know, more about on abortion, of course, you know, that, that definitely, as you're saying, the greatest injustice right now in this country, you know, um, talk more about the judgment seat of Christ, talk about Marxism and kind of, uh, you know, how that is a big threat right now. And it seems to me that many, many people don't even see that as a threat. So I, I, I really want to, you know, pick your brain and why that's uh, a dangerous ideology now. And, um, and I'm scared that there are a lot more people um, accepting this and thinking it's okay. It's, it hasn't worked in other countries, but it'll work here. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, sure. so I can't wait to really talk about that. So yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm just thankful for this and uh, being able to just talk about it. For sure, man. All right, Paul. Well, thanks for joining us, everybody. Hope you have a great day. See you later.